0: To remind you, the reason we began 1 Thessalonians, the initial plan was to do Luke, Acts, Romans. I figured that would give us a great foundation as a church, and that is still the case. We finished Acts after we'd done Luke and Acts, and I thought to myself, you know, we just did two really long books. Maybe it would be good for us to do something a little shorter that we can get through in in a shorter amount of time. Also because when we began, we were we were heading into this tumultuous election season that we had and for whatever reason politics and elections are always wrapped up in aberrant end times prophetic teaching and the focus gets taken off of the return of the Lord and what the Bible might say about the political situation in the book of Daniel or Revelation or whatever and so I wanted to not correct anyone here but to make sure we had a solid foundation and I think that we've done that and It's not just been about that. We learned last week about working hard. We've learned about trusting the Lord through persecution and a lot more. And the last charge that the authors are going to give to the Thessalonians and thereby to us is to not give up, to not grow weary, but to keep on going. When you look at all the things that Thessalonians have gone through, the things that we go through as Christians, it's easy to let those things bring you down or to make you cynical about the Christian life. But the Bible tells us not to grow weary. And we're going to see today, it's all about keeping your eyes on Jesus, maintaining love and loyalty to the person of Jesus Christ, not to an institution, not even to a group of people, but to the Son of God himself. And I think this is a fitting way to end any study of any book, which is to keep going. And the the title today comes from the song that we just sang, Though None Go With Me. That's what it's all about. I'm still going to follow Jesus even if no one else is going to go with me. And I hope that's the attitude that we can grab from these verses today. So let's begin just by reading verse 13, which gives us the the big point, the big heading for today. They say, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. As for you, brothers. The Thessalonians were... First introduced to the gospel after Paul and Silas and Timothy left Philippi, which is the famous story of them being taken down into the jail and singing at midnight and the earthquake that shook the doors open. The next stop was Thessalonica. And they received the gospel, but the Jews in the city were so jealous they stirred up a riot against the apostles. And they were forced to leave the city after a very short time, maybe even as short as a few weeks, but maybe a little longer than that. Shorter than Paul wanted to stay there. They went to Berea, they got chased out of Berea, and Paul went down to Athens and then to Corinth, where he would stay for 18 months. And during that time, the Thessalonians were persecuted, they were facing false teachers in the church that were giving them all kinds of bad ideas about the return of the Lord. And we learned last week about those who are walking in idleness or disorderliness, and that's why he opens it up by saying, as for you, that's them, but as for you. But what is so great about the Thessalonian church is that despite all that, they were still there. They were still going. There was still a church in Thessalonica to keep going. And you know what? That is all really that God asks of us, is to keep going, to not give up. Very often we think God requires incredible achievement of his people. And as a pastor, I can fall into that. Where I start putting a trip on everybody that if you haven't led 10,000 people to Jesus, how can you call yourself a Christian? Or if you haven't dealt with every sin in your life to where you're just a master of your own body, then, then how do you call yourself a believer in Christ Jesus? But really, that's not the case. The Lord requires of us to, what did Jesus say over and over again? Abide. Abide is the Greek word meno. It means to remain or to stay. Or to keep going. We like to make that word magical. Who knows what abide really means? It's not complicated. It just means to keep going. A branch abides in the vine. It stays attached. That's what Jesus asks of us. To stay attached to the vine. He says, if you want to see fruit, if you want to see growth, if you want to see ministry accomplished through you, stay attached. Keep going. And a lot of us, we see the incredible things that great ministers of God do, and we think there's no way. But well, you come in and say, well, could you stay attached to Jesus? You go, well, I can do that. And the Lord's like, well, that's all I'm asking you to do. The rest will follow that. Well, Tyler, we're supposed to put forth effort, and there are people in the church that think they can be lazy. Yeah, okay. As for you, keep going. Yes, we put forth effort. But the most important thing is that we continue. If you make your Christian life all about the effort you put forward and the results that you accomplish, you are going to serve in bursts and end up, Burning out. There's a word that we get really like weirdly attached to. Burnout. Well, I don't want to burn out. Okay, yeah, you don't want to burn out. But the Lord has told you, hey, I just need you to keep going and stay attached. Faithful plodding over many years is more admirable than a, a couple months of great success. How many people in the church have we seen that come in, do incredible work, and then they just fizzle right out? I'm not even talking about celebrities. I'm talking about people in our churches. Maybe get radically saved. And like the parable of the sower, the the vine springs up quickly, and we see the fruit, and it's amazing. And then before too long, they've just worn themselves out, and they can't keep going anymore. And maybe they fall away, or maybe they just collapse in the church, and they, they can't do anything more. The Lord doesn't want you to do that. The Lord wants you to keep going. Galatians 6 verse 9, a very similar verse, says, Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. That brings another point. Well, I've been attached to the vine and I'm not seeing any kind of accomplishment. I've been preaching to this church for years. I've been on this missionary field. I've been witnessing to that person and nothing's come of it. Sometimes you feel like your effort is not bearing fruit and you get cynical. The Thessalonians could have got cynical. We're trying to serve Jesus. We're waiting for the return of the Lord. And we get false teachers coming in who say they know Paul and don't. I want to bring us this whole weird doctrine of the fact that we're already in the last days and the end of the world. And it's scaring people and telling them that we're not going to be able to see our relatives who've already died because they missed the rapture. You can get cynical by that. Or you, you don't trust anybody to teach you the word anymore. Or maybe you've got disorderly church members. Hopefully not in this church. But you just have friends or people you meet online. Really weird how often we prioritize what we see on the Internet as compared to what happens in real life, but I digress. All oh, these terrible Christians, they're, they're allowing this, and they're engaging in that sin, and they don't believe in this anymore. And we get cynical. And we say, fine, well, I'm going to keep going, but what's, what's the point of engaging with a church like that? Well, Jesus loves that church is the answer to that question. But the real answer is this. It's not for them. You don't serve Jesus for them. For other people you don't serve jesus even for yourself that's a dangerous thing well i'm not getting out of this what i thought i was going to get out of it so maybe i should try buddhism and see what they've got to offer me we do this for jesus why was peter able to go and hang upside down and die on a cross right after he watched his wife crucified right in front of him not because he knew that this was going to bear amazing fruit and i'm going to go down in history as a great man because he knew Jesus and he was not about to let anybody steal the love and the loyalty he had for Christ. Same thing when Polycarp was brought before the Roman magistrate and he says, "Please, just it's a pinch of incense to Caesar. What's the big deal?" He says, "You're an old man. I don't want to put you to death." And Polycarp said, "I've followed Jesus for 80 years and he's never done anything wrong to me. How could I betray him in this moment?" The love of Jesus, that's a motivation that will last. If you want to set yourself up for lifelong obedience to follow Christ, you must get to know Jesus. It's very dangerous. Well, I was talking about this with some folks the other day. That when we are in a culture as we are certainly in, in Alabama, that, that values the church and values the scriptures, and even on a cultural level. But you know that's because somebody talks about Jesus and goes to church. That do not mean they're born again. And what happens is we take... Jesus and the church and the Bible, and we conflate that with being a Republican and a conservative, and then we conflate that with living in this community that we live in, and then we conflate that with Western culture, and now it's not about Jesus, it's about this big pile of stuff that we have. It's about identity instead of about Jesus, and this is what I love about the ministry that we get to do, is we get to take people who believe the Bible and believe in God and are saved, but we get to introduce them to Christ for the first time. I know God. You can know God. Yes, you can know God. That was the whole point. Jesus said, I have come that they might know you. Paul said, I've given up everything that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. Paul said, I'll give up everything. I gave up being a Pharisee. I gave up being rich. I gave up being known. I gave up power and influence and authority. I count that stuff as garbage because I get to know Christ. That's what it's all about. How do I get to know Jesus? You come to church, you pray, you read your Bible, you evangelize, you fellowship, you worship. It's not complicated. That's another thing. We try to complicate that too. And we have this weird Hindu thing about knowing God where you've got to cross your legs on top of a mountain and you'll float off the ground and that's when you get to know Jesus. It's not. The Lord has already prescribed ways. You've got the Holy Spirit living within you already to testify of Christ, the Gospel of John says. So spend time with him. Stop putting so much noise in your life that you can't hear him anymore. You can know Jesus. And once you get to know Jesus and you recognize what he's done for you, remember what Jesus said, whoever's been forgiven a little, they love a little. Whoever's forgiven much, loves much. And you say, well, I got saved when I was 11. What do you talk about? You know, I, I haven't had a bad life. You got to let Jesus open up your heart and show you all this stuff that is inside that if you were given the chance and the right circumstances, who knows what you might turn into. And then you realize, Lord, you saved me from all that. You saved me from becoming that guy or that girl. I, I love you so much, Jesus. And then when somebody comes in and wants to try and tell you, well, you know, the Bible's not real. You know, God, you're like, I know God. Don't tell me he's not real. It's like in 1 John when he said, we have handled him. We talked to him. We ate with him. We slept next to him. We sat in a boat together. Don't tell me he wasn't real. It means just as true for you. You haven't seen him, but he says we love him. And we get all smug about that. Well, we love Jesus. That's a feminization of the culture. That is not true. That is not true. Jesus said the first commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's the first thing. Loving Jesus. Not even loving your neighbor. That's second. Because you love your neighbor, your neighbor's going to let you down. But I love that song that we sing, you're never going to let me down. And if that's not good enough, you need to do so because you are commanded to do so. Keep going. But love and loyalty will produce so much more. I've known Christians that are being obedient because they're supposed to. And they're doing the right thing, but maybe they're not great to be around. You know what I mean? But you know somebody that just is in love with Jesus Christ and and. You talk about the scriptures and you talk about doctrine. I'm going to go on a little rabbit trail here because I've been dealing with this a lot lately where, you know, there's a lot of false teaching that we're dealing with right now. And there's been persecution in, in certain quarters that we're dealing with. And, and, and the culture is swaying away from Christ. And so Christians have been speaking up. I love it. But what concerns me is we're talking about these things and the thing that we get passionate about is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. When, when somebody talks about Jesus, when I hear the name Jesus, my heart just swells up. Doesn't it for you? It's like, oh, that's my Lord. That, that's my God. He died for me, and, and he, he's been so good to me. And, and he answered my prayer when my daughter was, was sick and not doing well. And I was at church, and he, he helped me lead this person to Christ. And their life is totally transformed. And yeah, we, we have other things that we're prioritizing, and they're important. But it's all got to come from a love of Jesus Christ. Doesn't it? It's all got to come back to that. It should be that when somebody talks about God to you, your eyes just light up. And it's not just, I'm offended because you're on the opposite team. It's like, don't you know my Jesus? I want you to know my Jesus. That's the motivation that will keep you going. Do not grow weary in doing good. Because Jesus didn't grow weary. Jesus didn't give up on you. Jesus didn't say, ah, those people are never going to get it. So you know what? I'm just going to go back to heaven and I'm not going to talk to anybody anymore. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't do that with you? Amen. Jesus went to the cross and did not despise the shame. There's a passage in Hebrews where the writer of the Hebrews actually kind of rebukes him a little bit. He says, you guys need to kind of get it together because you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood yet. <laughs> Don't you love that? He's like, yeah, I know it's hard, but it's not like you're being beaten up. Come on. No, nobody's been crucified, so buck up. You're fine. And we go, but it's hard. It's like, yeah, but... People around the world are getting their heads chopped off. Get it together. Keep going. Just like Jesus kept going. Didn't say, that's enough. All right, this flogging. I thought I could do this cross thing. I can't. You people are awful. I'm out of here. He kept going. And so we also must keep going. Amen? Verse 14 and 15 now. (laughs) This is the, the end of his conclusion, you might say. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him. That he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. There's a strong mandate from those authors, isn't it? <laughs> Take note of the person that says, eh, I don't think so. I don't know if I agree with that. Isn't that something that we think we somehow have the right to say about God's word sometimes? Well, you know, The Bible says that, that those who engage in homosexuality, that they're destined for hell and they need Jesus and marriage is between a man and a woman. Yeah, I just don't know if I agree with that excuse you? You have the right to say that? No, you certainly do not. Well, I think God wants us to have freedom of conscience. No, he doesn't. You're liberated from that. The Lord is going to tell you what is right because your conscience, according to Ephesians, has been seared with a hot iron and you don't know what's right. So he says, so when I write this and somebody comes in and says, I don't know if I agree with that, he says, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them we we'll note here, it's important for you to realize, the apostles were aware that their writings had scriptural authority. There is a whole slew of people that will tell you that when Jesus died and the apostles began to write the letters, they never intended it to be taken as scripture. They, this is just letting us know what they believed at that time, and we can evaluate it, and we can check it and see if we maybe know better than they do. That's simply not the case. He say, it's the word of God. And they say, well, the church came up with that later. False. In Acts chapter 20, verse 35, Paul says, as the scripture says, it is better to give than to receive, as the Lord Jesus said. He's quoting from the Gospel of Luke. So in the book of Acts, Paul quotes Luke and says, as the scripture says. And then, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, Peter says, this is sort of like what Paul says in his letters. He that I know they're kind of tough to understand, but, you know, the other scriptures are like that too. He calls Paul's writings scripture. Paul refers to the Gospel of Luke as Scripture. So the idea that the apostles did not think that their words had any kind of authority is simply not true. Paul says it right here. If anybody does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. have nothing to do with them. That's somebody who believed they had authority from God. So just a little apologetics note. The Bible never says that it's Scripture. Yeah, it does. And he says if there's those that do not obey Have nothing to do with them. There always will be people in the church who do not want to keep going. That's the sad truth. There will be those who want to quit. I can't take it anymore. It's so hard. Which is strange to me because I say you're leaving the gospel because it's hard and you're going to what exactly? That's going to make it easier. You think you're not going to have problems out there in the world? They want to change. There's always people who want to just change the scripture, change the way we do things. Oh, don't we know better by now? Don't we? Haven't we learned? Uh, I'll never forget this. Piers Morgan on TV one time said, it's time for an amendment to the Bible. Which is like, please keep those thoughts to yourself, my friend. I'd make for great TV, but it's kind of blasphemous. Or they want to deviate from the standard we've received. There are always going to be people like that. And the Bible tells us how to handle them. We do not tolerate people like that in God's church. This is similar to what we see in 1 Corinthians 5 where there was the man engaged in that sexual sin and they said to put him out. But this is a little different because he says to separate them. But look, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. If you see folks in the church that are not holding to the word of God, he says don't come at them like they're, they're wicked. You come to them like a brother and you warn him. Bring him back. He says to not have anything to do with him. Why? That he may be ashamed. A better way to translate that, that he might be shamed. That you as a community, by your treatment of that person, will shame him. As in honor-shame culture. Now today we are very opposed to all kinds of shaming, aren't we? And and, And you hear this all the time. You can't shame me for that. We talk about fat shaming. We talk about kink shaming. We talk about all kinds of shaming that you should not do. And some of them are so gross I can't even say them from the pulpit, to be honest with you. That anything you do, that you try to make somebody feel bad for doing it, that's wrong. Well, the church does not have that belief. Because the world is very individualistic and believes that there is no such thing as right and wrong and that it's all relative, it's super postmodern. that from your, their perspective, it's the right thing to do. So you can't tell them that's wrong because you have no right to tell them what's wrong. Well, in the church, we have somebody that has told us what is right and wrong. And our job as, a, as an organization, as a church, is to enforce righteousness in this way. And the church would get so carried away with this and say, (laughs) he says, if anyone does not obey, take note of them, have nothing to do with them, do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as a brother. And then later on, folks are like, okay, so you're saying that we should flog them in the church. Is that what you're saying, right? We should tie them up to the rack and try and pull their arms off. Is that? Yeah, that's a little weird too, isn't it? But there is a place in the church that our opinion of each other, the honor and the shame that we give to one another is to motivate our behavior. And as the authority of the church has weakened, it's become harder to do that. Talked about that last week, that if you feel like you've been shamed for something, you just go down the road and find another church. And I'm going to say this too. The church is the only institution that God has instituted. And there are some great parachurch ministries. There are some great traveling ministers and all the rest of it. But God's ideal is for those things to be done by the local church. I'm not coming out in some big statement here. I will say, though, that the worst heresies, the worst false teachers, the worst people online that refuse to submit to anybody, they're never tied to any one church. They're these loose canon, I only listen to myself kind of people, because a lot of the stuff that they get away with would never fly in a good gospel church, which is why I'm constantly saying, yeah, if we want to do something, let's do it as a church. Because that way there's the authority structure that God has put in place. There is the pressure of the community that is supposed to be exercised on, on one another. And that's nothing wrong necessarily with parachurch and with traveling ministers that aren't tied to any denomination or church necessarily, but it's not God's ideal. God wanted these things to be done by the church, together, united. And I realize that the you know the infinite fracturing of denominations makes it difficult to do that. But as far as I'm concerned, things should be tied to the church because if you have no pastoral authority over you, it's very easy to go crazy and you sit in judgment of other churches. I've heard people say, "I don't go to church because all the churches are—they're all corrupt." I'm like really, all of them? You went to all of them? And you, that's the kind of thing that makes me go. I think maybe you might be the one with a problem, not the churches. Look what Jesus said in Matthew 18, 17 about somebody who was committing sin. He says, if he refuses to listen to you and the people you brought with you, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Jesus right there is saying, now don't start by holding somebody up in front of the whole group. He said, but if you have been constantly trying to bring them along to do the right thing and they won't listen, he says, there's a time and a place to put them in front of the church because the church is a sanctifying force in our lives. The church is a place where there is proper biblical authority. It's also a place for proper biblical competence. That the church is there to train ministers of the gospel. There are some folks that speak with so much authority and have so little competence in the word of God that they ought to be ashamed of themselves. They have a little bit of knowledge. Have you heard this? It's it's bad to have a little bit of knowledge. It's, in fact, worse to have than having no knowledge. You know a little bit of scripture? And you know a little bit of prophecy, you know a little bit of theology, and now you're ready to go and take on the whole world. And there are people, it's very frustrating. And I haven't encountered this here so much, but when I was at a larger church before, that people would come in and they would say, now I know you said this, but here's this blog I found, or here's this video that I found online, and what do you have to say to that? And you listen to it, and it's, it's bad exegesis, it's bad Bible study, it's poor theology, and you find out that this person... Is not tied to any church, has no kind of ministry training, and very obviously doesn't know their Bible very well. But they got a slick video and they're very good at talking and being bold and kind of telling people what they want to hear. Which is why I, who I'm a nice person, I like everybody to get along. I just want us to talk about Jesus all the time. I, as an an authority in God's church and as a competent minister of the gospel, my job is to make sure that I stand strong on what the word says. Because I know this Bible. And I've been taught by godly good men how to teach it and how to understand it. And I think we all have to have a little bit of humility in recognizing that there are people that know the Bible better than me. And maybe I'm not the be-all and end-all in the church. That's what the church is there for. Which is why we need to be submitting ourselves. It's It's not like, submit yourself to me as your pastor. We, as a whole, submit, as Ephesians says, one to another. That we let this community that we are part of be a check on our lives. Be a check on how we're handling our marriages. Even how we're handling our finances. How we're raising our children. All those things. The words that we use. The things we post online. All of that is to be, in a, in a way, managed and policed by the church. I, would, I, I don't like confronting people over things. Some people, like, they get real excited about that. Oh, who am I going to rebuke today? I can't wait, you know. <laughs> but I would much rather in the church that, that we're just one another. We're talking to one another. Hey, I don't know if you should be talking like that. You don't need to be going to a place like that. What are you doing hanging out with her? You know she's bad for you. So that it never becomes a big deal where I've got to step in and now it's a huge problem that I've I've got to handle. You all as a church, we read in the last book, admonish one another. That's the role of the church as we're seeing here. Now, this does not give us license to treat everybody like they're a potential false teacher. You know? Well, he says that if someone does not obey what we say in this letter, so I'm making a list. Especially if they're not even in your church. I mean, give me a break here. The goal is always to reconcile. There are some people, kind of like we read in the psalm this morning, Psalm 62, that they see somebody on top and all they want to do is knock them down. And they get some kind of biblical reason why they can do that. And they maybe find some doctrine like in in one message out of like the 10,000 that they've given where they maybe didn't say it quite right, and now it's a big deal, and now we're going to knock them off their pedestal. Is that what Jesus did? Jesus didn't do that to people. Jesus was so forgiving and so kind that people said, I don't know if we can trust this guy. Our goal is always to reconcile. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. If they're in the church and they're professing the name of Jesus Christ, treat them like a brother. You might have to rebuke them and warn them. But it's not your job to go around deciding who is and is not on the team. That's up to Jesus Christ. And there are always going to be false teachers, too. You're going to spend your whole life chasing after false teachers. You're going to exhaust yourself. That's why sometimes I'll bring it up. Sometimes I'll bring up a certain bad thing to look out for, but that's not going to be the whole of what I do. We need to create that positive relationship with Christ, where it's not just here's what I don't like and here's what I don't believe and here's what we don't do. It's like, no, this is what I do and what I believe and who I'm serving. That, that is always going to be better. There's always going to be people that want to try to split churches. There's always going to be disorderly people. Your mandate is to keep going, even if you've got to do it alone. And there are some of you in this room that are, have told me that I saw my whole church just collapse around me. They abandoned the teaching of the word. They abandoned sound doctrine, and I didn't know what to do. Well, good for you for keeping going. Sometimes you can feel totally isolated. Remember Elijah in 1 Kings 19? He had just called down fire from heaven, and it didn't do a thing in the hearts of the people. After three years of famine and no rain, they're still coming after him. And he says, Lord, I'm the only one in the whole world, so you better just kill me right now. And God's like, get up. I'm going to send you to this guy named Elisha. And he's, he's actually going to be twice the prophet you were, Elijah. And he says, I've got 7,000 people in Israel that have not bowed the knee to Baal. It's always, there's nobody serving Jesus except me. That's not true. There are no good churches in this town. That is very unlikely. God always has a remnant. Even in dark places, God has a remnant. And he's always on the move. So he says, you keep going. And if somebody is deviating from that, then let the church admonish them to continue. But I would add to this, don't don't let that become your point of obsession. Your point of obsession is your salvation in Christ Jesus. I have every intention of carrying on. And I hope that you're going to come with me too. Let's read verse 16 to the end now. Here it comes. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So we come to the very end. You've got your final benediction. You've got a personal note. It's actually pretty short compared to some of his other letters. Paul will give long lists, like chapter long lists of the people that he's greeting and wants to say hello to. But verse 17 shows us, he says, I, Paul, we know that Silvanus, which is Silas and Timothy, also co-wrote this letter, but this might give us an indication that Paul was what you might call the primary author, that the other two were there helping and I'm sure giving good input, but Paul was the primary author. He was the authority in that group. And we already saw back in chapter 2, verse 2, if you remember, he said, do not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit, a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us. So it seemed that there were people that were pretending to be Paul and then sending letters in his name. So what Paul did is he developed a kind of signature that he would use to mark the letter as his own. And of course, verse 17 is that signature. And because it's in English and because it's been printed, we don't know exactly what it looked like. But apparently he had a very distinctive way of writing. In Galatians, he would say, see with what large letters I write to you. And that can either mean long letters, or as many of us think, Paul had an issue with his eyes, and in order for him to be able to see, you know, he wrote these, these big letters. So it could be something like that, maybe. So if you have bad handwriting, just say, well, I'm just like the Apostle Paul. <laughs> but we see this in 1 Corinthians 16, Galatians chapter 6, Colossians, Philemon, they all have that same marker at the end of their letter, which is pretty great. And I mentioned a second ago that there are those that, that say the scripture didn't have any authority initially. I'm going to add a, maybe another piece to that. The fact that Paul and the other apostles were aware of false letters being sent around and took measures to prevent those letters from being accepted, that really blows up the idea that the, the church believed that you could believe whatever you wanted and then stamped it out later on when, when the mean old Nicene Creed was made that got rid of all the diverse heresies that the church had. They were aware of forgeries and they took steps even this early to make sure that they were not accepted. So you should be very, very careful if somebody says, we found a new gospel. We found a new letter from an apostle and it's going to change everything. Paul knew about these things too. And he said, don't accept that. Now Romans 16.22 tells us, among other verses, that Paul usually did not handwrite the letters himself. He used what was called an Amenuensis, don't worry, you don't need to remember that word. It means that he would dictate it and that person would write it down. So Romans 16, he says, hi, it's Tertius, I'm the one that wrote this down. It's nice to see you guys too. He would use men like Timothy, Sosthenes would help him write the book of Romans. Very cool, it adds a little bit of light and color to how these letters were written. And presumably after it was done, Timothy would have taken it back to the Thessalonians from Corinth. And he would have come back eventually, of course. This is still around 50 A.D. that this was written. 20 years after Jesus died and rose again. So all these doctrines that are so developed and that are so amazing for us to look at, the church knew them early. The church did not evolve over a couple hundred years. Early on, they believed in the resurrection. They believed in the rapture. They believed in grace through faith. They believed in the deity of Christ and the Trinity. So... Good for us to know that. The Thessalonian epistles, as I've said before, were the first letters that Paul wrote other than Galatians. So these are still his earliest letters that he's written. And I love this benediction that he has here. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. And then verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. That's high Christology right there. Christology is the study of Christ. He calls him Lord I've said this before, many times in the New Testament, the term Lord is not referring to God the Father, but it's referring to God the Son, Jesus Christ. You see it right here. May the Lord of peace, who's that? Jesus. The Lord be with you all, who's that? Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, there it is, be with you all. So, 20 years after Jesus had ascended, they were worshiping Jesus as Lord. And there's three blessings that the authors give for the Thessalonians and and for us too. First, the peace of God calls Jesus the Lord of Peace. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 said he would be called the Prince of Peace. The book of Philippians says that Jesus gives us a peace that passes understanding. I mean, you're so peaceful it doesn't make any sense for you to be peaceful. Peace is a calmness of spirit despite external circumstances. That's important to know because when you pray for peace, the implication is that it is not a peaceful situation. When they were on the boat in the storm, Jesus was asleep. He had peace, even though the waves were still stormy. And he rebuked the disciples for not having peace. So if you say, well, I had peace, and now I don't have it anymore. What that might mean is, everything was going great in my life, and now things are tough. And it turns out you had never learned the peace of God in the first place. And now is the time for you to learn it. Second of all, the presence of God. As the Lord be with you all. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 20, the end of the Great Commission. Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Well, how is that possible? Jesus ascended to heaven by the Holy Spirit. Jesus, the Father, and the Spirit are one, and yet they are three. So by having the Holy Spirit living in your heart, indwelling you, you have the Spirit of Christ with you at all times. And Jesus said in the book of John, it's better for me to do it this way. I know you don't want me to go to heaven, but if I go to heaven, I can send you the Spirit. And now I won't be with you, next to you. I will be within every single one of you. We just sang in that song, if God may be known, nothing else matters. As far as I'm concerned, if I can know God, why do I care about anything else? Let's start with that. The presence of God. He's with you. And that's the thing. God is omnipresent. He's always with you. But it's a matter of becoming aware. Another song we sing, let us become more aware of your presence. That's what I want. I want to know that God's there in my heart, not just in my head. And number three, verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So the peace of God, the presence of God, and the grace of God. Now this is grace for salvation. Ephesians 2 talks about, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. And it's not just grace at that moment. It's grace for every moment. The Lord giving you something you don't deserve. God does not count your sins against you at the cross or any time after that. He enables you to live life victoriously. I've compared it to trying to learn to do a trapeze and grace is the net. You're not going to do it right the first time. You're going to fail. You're going to stumble. You're going to fall. But the grace of God is there to catch you and say, now get up and try it again. Isn't that awesome? Well, I sinned, so I must be going to hell. No, that's the, the whole point is that you, you are a sinner. And that's never going to be taken away until you meet Jesus in the clouds. So trust that the grace of God is giving you permission to try and even to fail as you get closer and closer to the Lord. The Lord of peace gives us peace. He's with us always. Grace. Very similar this passage to the blessing that the priests would give in the book of Numbers 6. It says the Lord bless you and keep you the lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you the lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace you can see all the pieces in there bless you and keep you may the lord be with you the lord be gracious unto you there's the grace may the lord give you peace and that's amazing that they're praying that god would give those things to them in the old testament and in the new testament the one who gives us those things is jesus second corinthians 1 verse 20 says all the promises of god in him are yes and amen Not only are the wishes of God's people, but the the wishes of the world are fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Does the world not want peace? There's an epidemic of depression and anxiety and fear and stress today. And people are killing themselves in record numbers. You think they don't want peace? To have inner ability to walk through difficulties? That's something that only Jesus can offer. How about the presence of God? There are people that would kill to know for sure that there is a God who exists and made them and cares about them and loves them. And that's what we see in Jesus Christ. We know it's true because he sent his only son to die on the cross and rise again. And wouldn't the world give anything for forgiveness and for the ability to keep going through life without guilt and shame hanging over your head? We can march in the streets and say, no more guilt, no more shame. Well, the only reason we do that is because we're guilty and we're ashamed of ourselves. But Jesus offers forgiveness from those things. So why would we look anywhere else for them, right? Why would we go somewhere else? Well, I know the Bible has a lot of good things to say, but you know, I was watching this thing on TV and there's a new method that's out and it's gonna be very, very helpful. I've tried Jesus and it didn't work. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. You're talking about the eternal, everlasting, omnipotent creator of the world whose spirit dwells within you. I tried it, it didn't work. No. That's not not the case. I'm not saying it's not difficult or that it doesn't take a long time or that the Lord will lead you. So you want peace? Here, come here. We got to get rid of this. And you say, Lord, but I like that. But Lord, I can't get over that. I define myself by that. That happened to me when I was a kid. I can't get over that. I'm not saying it's not difficult. I'm not saying it's not a narrow, straight road that only a couple are going to find. But I'm saying that Jesus Christ has all of those things that we're looking for. So Christian, no more halfway stuff. Can we just say that? No more halfway, no more putting on the Christian badge and then living your life just like you'd live it anyway. No more doing whatever Jesus says as long as it agrees with what you already wanted to do. You're not worshiping God if that's the case. If you, worship, if you agree with Jesus and everything he says except for here, here, and here, you're not worshiping Jesus, you're worshiping yourself. Because the second you disagreed with Jesus, who would you go after? Yourself. Go all in with Jesus. Let the world chase their faulty ideas. Let the world deviate. Let those in the church who are disorderly go after false teaching. We are going to revel in the grace and the presence and the peace of God. And that's going to about wrap it up for 2 Thessalonians. To remind you, Thessalonica was called the metropolis of Macedonia. It was an enormous city. It still to this day is the second largest city in, in Greece. They were not ethnically Roman, but they were a free city. They were proud to be Roman. And we talked about the contrast that in, in, in Judea, they hated Rome. They wanted Rome gone. And should we pay taxes to Caesar? Thessalonica, it was their privilege and delight to pay taxes to Caesar. They worshipped the goddess Roma, the city of Rome. They worshipped Caesar. And yet God put a church there that would never be overcome. If God could plant a church there... God can put a church anywhere. And we've got disorderly people too in our lives. We've got people in the American church who are disorderly and idle and all the rest of it. We are facing rising persecution. I'm hoping the Lord rolls it back, but people are getting more and more brazen in their hatred of the church. We have all manner of false teaching, especially concerning the return of the Lord. And we can start to get cynical and despair. Well, that, that just must be it for us then. I don't think so, because I serve the same God that Thessalonians did. I serve the holy, triune God. I have a Father in heaven. I have His Son, Jesus Christ, as my mediator. I have the indwelling Holy Spirit within me. You do not have the option, Christian, to become anxious or sloppy or hostile towards God, wringing your hands all the time. Oh, no, it's all falling apart. No, it's not. The Lord is, and, and I, it's, I've said this before, and I, I don't see this as such a strong thing, but sometimes it comes across that way. For years, what have we been saying in the church? The church is, is too full of itself. It's too secure. It's too safe. It's too bloated. There's too much going on that's not right. God's got God's to shake this church up. And the Lord said, all right, let's shake it up. And he starts shaking it up. go, oh, no, Lord, don't shake the church. <laughs> now is the time for your faith to be activated Hebrews chapter 12 said, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. If God is disciplining and chastening his church, he says, get up and do what you got to do so that the surgery will take. Isn't that the case? Sometimes you got a surgery and they tell you, you got to do the physical therapy or this won't work. Well, if God's doing surgery on his church, we got to do the physical therapy. We got to get up and serve the Lord. There's no place for despair or hand-wringing. Y'all, these are our days. In all the long span of eternity, God said, these days are going to be tough. So these are the Christians I need right there. Think about that. Doesn't that get you excited a little bit? And that doesn't mean you were strong. Maybe God said, I'm going to stick my weakest Christians right there so that I'll get all the glory. They'll have no choice but to depend upon me. There's this old song that I used to listen to and it had this spoken word part on it and they would they talk about the difficulty of the world and all we're going through as a church and the guy said at one point, I was born for this. That's got to be your attitude, church. Not, oh no, here it comes. Oh Lord, please rap us before it gets too bad. You've got to get up and say, All right. It's time to get into the game. It's time to get into the fight. It's time to see the Lord do something amazing through the American church. It's time to show that the American church is not just serving the Lord because he's blessed us with everything, like the book of Job, that we're going to say, though he slay me, yet I will serve him. And that the Lord will see that not just are we safe and rich and happy, and that's why we go to church, but we serve Jesus because we have met him And that the enemy will resent and regret the day he ever thought he could mess with millions of saints who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You've got to determine right now, I'm not giving up on Jesus Christ. I'm going to stand. I'm going to press forward. And like we sang today, though none go with me, still I will follow. If we've got to be Elijah standing alone against the 400 prophets of Baal, then so be it. But I'll tell you what, you won't be standing alone because I'm going to be there with you. Amen. The Lord's got people, the Lord's got a remnant, and we are the salt and light of this earth. So Christian, keep going. Hang on. You might not be able to be Michael Phelps swimming across the Atlantic Ocean or whatever it is he does. But but can you keep your head above the water? Can you keep going? Then yes, the Lord will be with us.